This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the U.S. Digital Corps launched last year to create and empower the government's future technology leaders. We'll talk to the head of that effort. Then, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given the international community insight into Moscow's military capabilities, especially when it comes to drones and unmanned weapon systems. We'll discuss Russian robotics on the battlefield. And smoking is the leading cause of preventable deaths in the U.S., killing nearly half a million people every year. We talked to the former FDA official who dedicated his career to changing that statistic. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. General Services Administration has announced its first group of 40 U.S. Digital Corps fellows. Serving across 13 federal agencies, the group will tackle priority projects in areas such as data science and analytics and cybersecurity. David Svenich is director of GSA's Technology Transformation Services and oversees that program. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So U.S. Digital Corps launched last year. What was the idea behind it? Who, who thought of this? Yeah, so the General Service Administration is home to a number of different programs, the ATF program, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, the Centers of Excellence, as well as a bunch of different other uh, technology platforms. Um, and one of the things that we had always done is we'd always recruited mid to senior career technologists. But as we looked around and we started to think about the ecosystem that we were in, we realized there weren't enough early career talents in governments. There weren't enough junior technologists that were part of our, our, part of our ecosystem. And so we started to think about how could we change that? How could we really bring the next generation of leaders into the government? And the U.S. Digital course started from there. So what are the requirements to join? You say early, mm-hmm. so I'm wondering where and, and what do you need to know before you're able to apply? Sure, that's one of the great things about our program is that there's not really one way in. Um, we have folks with PhDs. We have folks who have never, uh, never worked um, uh, in government before. We have folks who have been in government before. We have veterans. We have a wide range of folks who have uh, come from different parts uh, of their career, sometimes second careers. Um, but what we're really looking for are folks that have some experience with technology. Maybe they learned that in school. Maybe they learned that in practice. Um, but they're at the early stage of their technology careers. Um, and so we've looked, uh, we use what's called the Pathways Program, and that's something that um, we uh, found a lot of success with. Um, and we try to find technologists that, like I said, are uh, interested in having a career in public service as technologists. Um, and oftentimes they're coming from, uh, from government. Sometimes they're coming from a different type of government service. Um, or, like I said, this is their first time in government as a public servant. Do you have to have a college degree? Uh, you do have to have a tech, uh, college degree. That is one of the things that actually we think would be nice to see changed. Um, we weren't able to attract uh, folks or even recruit from folks from boot camps or self-taught technologists. Um, that is one of the, the limitations of the programs that we have. It's something uh, we, we did have over a thousand applicants to the program. So you we, know, I was going to ask you how hard is it to get in to get accepted? I mean, is it really competitive? It is. So like I said, we have over a thousand applicants and we've only selected about 40 fellows. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of competition um, and it really speaks to the quality of folks that really do want to join the public service. So how do you make sure that you get the skill that you're looking for, but at the same time ensure, you know, administration priorities, which are diversity, equity, how do you how do you balance those two? Yeah, so it's a, it's a couple of different things. The first is you want to make sure that we're recruiting widely. 
Um, so it, as part of that, attracting the 1,000 uh, candidates, um, it wasn't just you know, post and pray, as it were. We didn't just hope that candidates would come. Uh, we went to uh, campuses. We went to community groups. We went to a wide range of different places in order to, uh, to let folks know that this program existed. Um, and then when we went through the actual hiring process, we wanted to make sure that we're using best practices as part of the hiring. So we used a program called the SMEQWA process. I know that's a terrible uh, abbreviation, but um, it's basically trying to use uh, qualifications-based um, um, uh, and sort of uh, using subject matter experts to qualify candidates instead of just looking at their resume alone. Um, and that process allowed us to really vet whether folks had the skills and had the expertise. Um, and what we found is that by doing these sort of combination of practices, having a wide, uh, wide range to recruit from, having a really uh, intentional uh, hiring process, and then ultimately making sure that we had good places for folks to land, um, we had a really good uh, set of outcomes on DEIA. So how do you determine which agencies the fellows will work at and what projects they'll work on? Yeah, so this is part of the magic. Um, we wanted to make sure that uh, the fellows had a really great experience when they came to the government. Obviously, it's a bad experience to bring someone in and have them go to a, a, you know, an agency that's not gonna work for them. Um, so we spent time making sure that the agency partners that we worked with had a mature program, um, that they were prepared to keep the fellows after their fellowship. One of the things that you wanna do is create this pathway. We need to make sure that there's gonna be a home for them permanently. Um, and then ultimately make sure that the, uh, the projects that they're gonna work on are both meaningful, um, for, but also appropriately leveled for, for these early career technologists. So give us an example of a project a fellow would work on. Yeah, so we have fellows placed at the Office of Personnel Management, data scientists who are working on uh, data science projects with uh, basically personnel data. Um, we also have uh, fellows here at GSA. Uh, we have folks that are working on USA.gov, and we have folks that are working on login.gov and, and uh, 10X and beyond. The uh, benefits to the government are, are clear. What are the benefits to the fellows? What do they get out of this? Yeah, so a couple of, couple of key things. Um, the fellows are here to serve. Um, that's one of the things that I think is really incredible about this program is that these are folks who want to make a career in public service. And um, we pair them with other technologists in government. We pair them with really meaningful projects. And then we give them a pathway to actually serve in, uh, as a career as a public servant. So, you know, I, what I wonder, Dave, is, is this program really big enough to make an impact? Because there's a huge need within the government for early career technologists because we've got to keep them later on. So, I mean, 40 fellows, is that is that really going to do it? Not yet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there are a couple of things. Even one one individual can have a huge impact in government. That's one of the things that I've really learned over the course of my, my experience in government is that um, it's obviously not going to make a dent in the entire, you know, entire ecosystem, but it can make an impact for the public that we serve. Um, but more broadly, we are planning on scaling the program. Uh, this is just our initial inaugural cohort. Um, our plan is to grow uh, over the course of years and over the course of, uh, of time to add more agencies, add more fellows, and ultimately um, it compounds, right? So if we keep the fellows, um, they end up staying. Um, we have the next class, they end up staying. And as, it, as the classes get bigger, as the number of partners that we work with gets larger, um, we're gonna see more impact. Do you have the funding to um, really execute this long-term vision that you have to really grow this program so that it's having a bigger impact? Um, yes, and we were really fortunate as part of the American Rescue Plan to have that initial seed funding to get this off the ground. Um, without the American Rescue Plan, I don't think this would have happened nearly as quickly as it did. Um, and we have, uh, we have a, um, a program that is reimbursable, so we do work with other agencies that they can reimburse us for the, for the fellows' costs. Um, and that allows us to get some, uh, some scale um, and ultimately, it's one of the things that we have some experience with this, uh, within GSA of working with other agencies, building out these programs to scale and ultimately see them grow. Um, we, we can't do this alone. Um, obviously, this is working with Congress, it's working with the White House and working with our agency partners to make sure that we do get to that scale, but uh, we're off to a good start. 
All right. Well, Dave, thank you very much, and good luck with the program. Thanks so much for having me. Still ahead on Government Matters, Russia is relying heavily on drones and robotic systems in its war on Ukraine. We'll talk about what that means for future wars. And later on Government Matters, regulating the tobacco industry. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Despite early failures, unmanned aerial vehicles are a significant part of the Russian military's ongoing war against Ukraine. The commitment to robotics and autonomous weapons will continue to shape Moscow's strategy for future wars. That's according to Samuel Bendit. He's an advisor with CNA's Russia Studies program. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I want to start with Putin's trip to Iran. U.S. intelligence says that Iran will supply Russia with hundreds of drones. What do you think this means and why now? Well, it's a... I think it's an estimation of the fact that a lot of Russian UAVs, a lot of Russian military equipment in general, uh, has been lost over Ukraine. Russia is looking to replenish the stocks with uh, specific types of unmanned aerial vehicles, such as combat UAVs, such as loitering munitions. In other words, the type of drones that it actually lacks in great numbers to make significant headway against the Ukrainian military. And Iran is one of the two nations that has a very close military-to-military -military relationship with Russia, the other country being China. Iran is also uh, uh, a one of the most significant drone uh, fielding nations in the world. Uh, it has had its drone program for the last several decades, and it developed it under significant sanctions pressure from the United States. In other words, in many ways, Iranian drone program is relatively sanctions-proof. And Iran has been using its military drones through their proxies and allies all across the Middle East, uh, through their Yemeni allies, through, through their uh, Hezbollah allies, through their allies in Syria and Iraq. So Iranian drones are actually combat-proof. They were able to operate in a very complex environment across the Middle East. They were able to operate uh, with significant American air defenses in place in, in nations like Saudi Arabia and UAE that Iranian drones have struck. And Russia considers Iran to be one of the key nations around the world that stands up to the American and Western pressure. And it is seeking to build a better strategic relationship with the Islamic nation. So, Sam, early on, uh, Russia uh, in the war, Russia wasn't really relying on its drones. How has that changed in recent months? You're right. Uh, early on in the war, in the first couple of weeks, uh, a lot of observers noticed that Russia isn't really following its own military playbook. Uh, when it invaded Ukraine in the opening weeks of the war, it really didn't follow its own tactics and concepts. And unmanned uh, aerial vehicles were strangely absent in that initial assault. Uh, as the weeks went by, as the months went by, Russian military went back to its tactics that it has practiced, drilled, and um, it started using a significant number of unmanned aerial vehicles over Ukraine. Most of those unmanned aerial vehicles are relatively small and light. They provide intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and target acquisition for Russia's long-range artillery and multiple launch rocket systems. In fact, uh, drones as artillery spotters is one of the main roles that drones play today over Ukraine, both for the Russian and the Ukrainian militaries. Russia also has a relatively small number of combat UAVs, that it also tried to field uh, over Ukraine. There are a few videos of those UAVs available, and Russia pledged that it would start using loitering munitions over Ukraine. This is one of the uh, technologies that Russia observed 
that was used with great effect in the Nagorno-Karabakh War in 2020 in next door Azerbaijan and Armenia, when Azerbaijani military used the combination of combat UAVs and loitering drones with ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance drones with great effect against the Armenian military. And so Russia said in late June that it started using more loitering munitions against the Ukrainians. But again, uh, this is all about the numbers. How many of those does Russia have? How many of those uh, did Russia lose? Russia went into the war with an approximately 2,000 strong UAV fleet. The number 2,000 has been kind of bounced around for several years across the Russian Ministry of Defense. It's a relatively believable number considering the size and the scale of the Russian military. But most of those drones were actually for gathering intelligence. Russia really lacks a significant number of combat UAVs, a gap that it has repeatedly acknowledged and a gap that it has pledged to close in uh, the coming years as Russia brings up its military factories online to manufacture a growing number of combat UAVs as well as combat uh, helicopter type UAVs as well. And, and are the drones and, and the robotics uh, that we're seeing, are they the highest level of tech advancement we've seen them use in this war? Well, they definitely represent sort of a pinnacle of um, aerial warfare right now in Ukraine. Obviously, no drone, no matter how big or capable, can be compared to a manned fighter, a, a fighter jet that can carry more munitions, has a experienced pilot in the seat. But uh, combat drones and uh, some of the more advanced intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance drones are actually relatively sophisticated. What we are seeing is the change in tactics, how both countries' militaries, both countries' allies fighting this war are actually starting to change their own tactics, their own uh, ways of fighting by incorporating a growing number of different types of UAVs into their fight, especially when it comes to the commercial drones that are now getting increasingly widely used across uh, Ukraine, both by the Russian military and their allies from Donbas, as well as by the Ukrainian military and their volunteers. Some of these drones are becoming a lot more sophisticated. Uh, some of the uh, drones actually start using um, image recognition software. There's also a lot of deliberation whether or not some of the drones used in the war are equipped with artificial intelligence. I think if this war continues for a long time, we're going to see a, a growing share of sophistication amongst the UAV fielding and development in this conflict. All right. Well, Sam, I appreciate you being on the program with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, facing off against big tobacco, we'll discuss the FDA's efforts to regulate cigarette makers and how the industry has changed. We'll be right back. In 2009, Congress gave the FDA authority to regulate the marketing of tobacco products. Since then, the adult smoking rate has dropped from more than 20% to less than 13%. Many of those changes were guided by Mitchell Zeller, former director of the Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA. He's also a finalist for, for a Service to America medal. Mitch, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. You started with the FDA back in 1993. What was the tobacco industry like at the time, and what were the biggest challenges back then? Well, back in 1993, the tobacco industry was I would say more politically influential than they are now. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was, was the Clinton administration willing to take on the political battles of FDA making a decision to finally regulate the tobacco industry. And so we had to persuade the administration back then that we had a strong case to regulate and then we had to be with them to, to deal with whatever the political fallout was gonna be. And you weren't able to really regulate the industry and you left 
but then you came back in 2013. Well, actually, we did assert jurisdiction and began to regulate them in 1997, but the industry sued, and then they ultimately prevailed in the Supreme Court, which then shut everything down in 2000, yes. So in 2013, you came back to the F FDA. You were leading the Center for Tobacco Products, uh, which was pretty new at the time. Was the center, why was the center created? What was the mission? So in the historically unregulated marketplace, especially now for cigarettes, it was the, the cigarette companies, the, the product developers, the marketers, they decided which products came to market. They decided what kind of changes were made to products. And we're talking about a product that will kill half of its customers long-term prematurely later in life because of how toxic and dangerous cigarettes are. So the biggest change is that the Center for Tobacco Products became sort of like the gatekeeper. And in the same way that the public has an expectation of FDA when it comes to the regulation of foods or drugs or medical devices, that the agency stands between the regulated industry and the consumer, we assumed that responsibility to try to reduce the harms associated with ongoing tobacco use. So it was under your guidance that the FDA announced uh, rules to prohibit menthol in cigarettes and also all flavors in cigars. So what prompted that? What was the goal? That was a long-term effort. What, you said I came back in 2013. Well, one of the things that I was told in the Obama administration that I could start working on in 2013 was taking menthol out of cigarettes. And let's just say it never, it never happened. But so, why? What's the, what's the importance I of that? Think that? I think that there was a concern inside the Obama administration that it was too politically risky. I mean, we'll never know. No one ever said that in, in such stark black and white terms to me. Uh, all I know is that we never got the support that we needed to move forward with taking menthol out of cigarettes. The Biden administration supported both taking menthol out of cigarettes and all flavors out of mass-produced cigars, and I was very happy to see that announced finally in April. And, and why? What would that do? Is it because it makes it more appealing to younger people? The menthol in cigarettes masks the harshness of the nicotine and the other aversive parts of, of smoking cigarettes. When I was a teenager, I went into the woods and camp and tried to smoke a Marlboro, and then went back the next day and tried again and then stopped because it was, it was kind of gross and I was coughing. Well, the, the menthol, think about, you know, menthol cough drops. There's this cooling effect. And so the menthol literally just um, helps it easier for the poison to go down and also being very attractive to kids. And who is the remaining smoker today and who uses these mass-produced cigars, little cigars and cigarillos? Um, it's black Americans, it's Hispanic Americans, it's the current smoker has been left behind really with all the progress that we've made at a population level in reducing overall consumption and prevalence of cigarettes, taking the flavors out will go a long way to, to, to helping those that continue to smoke. So what's the key, do you think, to preventing kids from starting to smoke? It starts with education, and so FDA has made a massive investment in a public education campaign. Also, what we call denormalization. I grew up in a household where both my parents smoked. It's statistically proven that if you grow up in a household where at least one person is smoking, you are much more likely to smoke than if you grow up in a house where no one smokes. So denormalizing tobacco use, which has taken 40 or 50 years, has also been successful in reducing overall cigarette consumption. But we have some issues today when it comes to kids because it's a little known fact that each day more kids experiment with cigars than with cigarettes. So tremendous progress with cigarettes, a lot of work to do with cigars, and the single most popular tobacco product with kids is, of course, e-cigarettes. That's what I wanted to ask you about next, e-cigarettes and vaping. Where do we stand with that? We're at an interesting point where 
the rates seem to be going down. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is this remains by far the most popular category of tobacco products with kids. And unlike with cigarettes, kids know that cigarettes are dangerous. They may not know all of the harms associated with cigarettes, but no kid is walking around thinking that cigarettes are, are safe or, or less harmful than other tobacco products. By contrast, too many kids are walking around thinking that e-cigarettes are simply water vapor. They're not. Um, an e-cigarette could help an addicted adult cigarette smoker use a less harmful product but e-cigarettes contain nicotine, nicotine can be addictive, and no kid should be inhaling nicotine and these other compounds into their lungs. You know, we're seeing now a historically low rate of smoking in the United States. Is this about as low as it's going to go? I mean, we're never gonna get to zero. We're never gonna get to zero, but we still have more than 30 million Americans who smoke. And that's just an unacceptable number. So yes, the population level number, numbers are historically low, but we have a lot more work to do. We're still talking about the leading cause of completely preventable disease and death in the country and in the world. 30 seconds, what's gonna be the biggest challenge going forward in regulating big tobacco? I think the biggest challenge is gonna be, can the Biden administration deliver on reducing the allowable levels of nicotine in combustible tobacco products? When I was center director, we published some population level modeling which show, showed that that one policy could avert millions of deaths projected out through the end of the century. The Biden administration has announced its commitment to this. I think one of the biggest challenges will be for that rulemaking to be completed. If it is, it'll be one of the greatest interventions in the history of public health. Mitch, thank you so much and thank you for your work on this subject. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.